for Where Hollywood Hides. Here's Bob and Suzanne. Chicken joke. I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. I know Baby, you're the great. Here comes the judge. Small cowbell. That special. There's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no. Welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast number 30. Woohoo! My name is Bob McCullough. Yeah, baby. What's your name? We made it to 30. (laughs) We did. And I am 30 years old. I wish. (laughs) Suzanne Herrera McCullough's here. Welcome, Suzanne Herrera McCullough. You sound McCullough. like we're drinking. We, <laughs> we're not. We're not. When can we start, though? We actually need to start doing these things around happy hour, don't you think? Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. So, there's a lot of hype on Gone Girl, the movie with Ben Affleck. Oh, Ben Affleck. Here we go again. No, it's supposed to be really good. I, you must be thrilled. As a matter of fact, Rolling Stone's movie critic has dubbed the mystery thriller as the date night movie of the decade for couples. Are you asking me out? Who's always dreaming of destroying each other. Is that a documentary? <laughs> this is what they dubbed it. All right. So, I think it's... This generation's fatal attraction. Oh, could like. be. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, do, do you like Courtney Love? Do I like? I don't know Courtney Love. No, I don't mean personally. Do you like her music? I, you know, I I couldn't hum a single one of her tunes. What kind of music would you say she does? Well, she was involved with Kurt Cobain, so right, it's right. got to be like grunge rock or okay. something. Well, I, you know, I was reading this article about her, which I found fascinating. She has been cast as one of the lead roles in an upcoming pop opera in the Kansas City Choir Boy. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, Courtney Love in opera. Well, she has an operatic lifestyle. Everything's high drama. That's, that's for, right. That's for sure. Anyway, she's going to be in 10 performances. This is going to be in New York, January 8th to the 17th. Yeah, I wonder if she actually will sell tickets. I mean, her name. Well, listen, she just got through finishing a tour in Australia, so she definitely has a fan base. So maybe everybody in Australia will go to New York. Um... What's with James Franco and Seth Rogen? They're doing these crazy videos. Remember the one they did with about uh, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West? Yeah, yeah. That was great, actually. I like that kind of stuff. I thought that was hysterical. Well, they have a new one. And you'll get a kick out of this. Called Naked and Afraid. Oh, perfect. One of my favorite shows. James Franco and Seth Rogen, they have pictures of themselves. Are they naked? Naked. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Seth Rogen has, you know, that handbag that yeah. over him. And I saw the pictures. I, I'm not sure what they're thinking about. They have pretty good careers, right? Very good. Well, oh, maybe this gets their names out. They're major stars. Yeah. yeah. It's all over Instagram. So oh, cool. You must I'll take a have look. To, oh, I'll have to check it out. That'll be my afternoon. Right. Hey, listen, today's podcast features somebody that I think everybody knows. This is a guy who has had a major television and film career. He has worked with Cary Grant. He has worked with Donna Reed. He has had several pop hit recordings, and he is a political activist. One of the co-stars of the Donna Reed show for seven or eight years. He has been the force. He was the founder of A Minor Consideration, which he will talk about. And I think you're going to find that our conversation with him is as dramatic and powerful and impactful as any we've had. I found him to be extremely interesting. And the guy has, you know, a hundred acting credits, major feature films, major television series, counts among his friends, everybody in Hollywood. He's an author many times a, a, over. A published author, a novelist, 
and you know just an incredibly articulate and bright guy and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So what do you say we just jump in? Well, before we go into that, I just want to remind people that we have a book, Where Hollywood Hides Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. Right. We are very excited. We have gotten so much great press. Santa Barbara is kind of a buzz about the whole thing. And I'm putting all those great press releases in a scrapbook. And we'll put them on the website as well. So just go to wherehollywoodhides.com. You'll see there's a place where you can order the book directly. You'll get free shipping direct from the publisher. And we do want to thank the folks at the Santa Barbara News Press, in particular Dave Mason, who wrote a great article about us, and Arthur Von Wiesenberger, the publisher. Also, the Montecito Journal did a great article. I want to thank Richard Mynards for that. Okay, so let's take a listen to what Paul Peterson has to say. Hey, Bob, how are you? Good morning. I feel like we're old friends. We've exchanged so many emails. Well, in fact, we are old friends. (laughs) We are indeed. My wife, Susanna, is with us. Hi, Paul. Hi, Susanna. A little bit later in our conversation, I'm going to reveal something about you and Suzanne that you probably both forgot. Uh Uh-oh. All right, well, let's make sure we have our attorneys. (laughs) Yeah, it's not scandalous. (laughs) So the the nature of these podcasts, Paul, is um, there's an awful lot of folks out there who... Do, have never had a Hollywood career, and they're very much interested in how one actually evolves and probably where you go from there. So generally, we like to start at the very beginning, and my initial thought would be, how did you actually become an actor? Well, um, it, the, the funny way to say it is my mom was bigger than me. I was already singing and dancing and singing at the Hollywood Bowl and at church and performing at weddings and funerals, um, when I was seven and eight years old. And at age nine, I went on an open audition at Disney for a creature called the Mouseketeer. And out of the thousands of kids that uh, auditioned, they hired 16, and I was one of them. Wow, that that percentage is The original Mouseketeers. Now, now up up to that point, were you going to public school? Yes, indeed. Yep, I was uh, going to school regularly, taking three uh, different kinds of lessons every week, along with my sister Pam, and uh, playing a lot of baseball and being a kid. But you really had the performing bug. Well, I didn't have it so much. I mean, I love to perform, don't get me wrong, to Mm -hmm. this day. Uh Uh, But I hated the practice. That was, you know, that tore a big hole in my day, two and three hours uh, a day practicing. And um, the lessons could be difficult unless I was learning new things. But all of that changed when I became a Mouseketeer because suddenly it's a job. And I did not, at nine years old, appreciate the difference between kind of uh, performing for fun and sometimes for a little bit of money and performing as a professional. And uh, my distinctive... uh, uh, reaction or instinctive reaction to the kind of suffocating nature of, of the discipline required was to act like a nine-year-old. So I have the distinction of being the world's first ex-mouseketeer because I was fired for conduct on becoming a mouse. <laughs> oh, you mean like you were acting like a normal nine-year-old boy, you mean? That is correct. There were ladders to climb. Uh, okay. Disneyland was being built. They had uh, those uh, cars that used to run over in Tomorrowland, and they didn't need any keys, and you could hop in them and jump around. The, the paint shop, sure, sure. You know, the paint shop doors were wide open, and um, I got in a lot of trouble. So you were part of the first generation. Was was Annette involved then? And a- Absolutely, yes, the, the first group. Well, I must And I it. was there... Well, you, Just you, long enough to you, perform at the opening of Disneyland in July of 1955. You and I are exactly the same age, so 
I, ru I rushed home every day after school to see you guys. I want you to know. Oh, well, I did too. <laughs> Even after I was fired. You know, there, what red-blooded American boy didn't get home in time to watch Annette grow? In every <laughs> possible way. So that, so that was a very short but high-profile uh, opportunity, and that must have led to other things. So you, at that point in time, did you really have the, the notion that, hey, I'm an on-screen kind of a guy, I want to keep doing this? No, I'm not really, but you see, in California, you have to have an agent uh, to work. Uh -huh. And uh, by the time I got the contract at Disney, I got an agent named Lola Moore. And, of course, the answer to losing your first job is to go out for other jobs. And as it happens, um, I'm just uh, the kind of kid that uh, I love the challenge of auditioning, and I got more than my share of work. And in a very short time span, uh, I was getting plum jobs on Ford Theater, Lux Video Theater, uh, the parts got bigger. I had national commercials like uh, Manners the Butler. And before I knew it, I was going up for really great roles. Um, capped uh, at the end of two years with uh, playing Cary Grant's son in the great movie Houseboat. You sound like you were very castable. Well, I, look, I was the epitome of the all-American boy. You know, tousled hair, uh, gap-toothed, uh, willing to try most anything. And, of course, I didn't have any trouble with the memorization, or even the discipline, because once I learned my lesson, uh, I, was a I was a professional kid. We've heard the name Lola Moore before. How? Well, how I'm sure there were only two kid agents in Hollywood at the time. There was Lola Moore, who was a big, heavy-set woman, famous for her floppy uh, uh, hats, and uh, Jeannie Halliburton. So I had one of the two agents. Remember, now, we're talking about a much smaller community uh, of professional kids, right? And um, there was, you know, maybe, maybe three thousand altogether. And you only went up for the parts you were right for. It wasn't like today, where they will have a, a cattle call with five hundred kids for a uh, one line in a commercial, because the people who were doing the commercials really don't know what they want. How how was Lola Moore? What was her reaction when you lost the Disney job? Well, her reaction was what any professional agent's uh, uh, reaction would be. Well, let's get the next job. Oh, so she she, um, she, she, she didn't hold it against me that I got fired. You know, okay. I was nine years old. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right, right, right. But I, I imagine uh, you probably didn't repeat that behavior. It's a powerful lesson to learn. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it hurt like the Dickens to have to... Actually, my mom handed me the phone on a Friday afternoon, and it was the Disney casting office uh, telling me I was discharged. Oh, boy. And, um, and I had to go out uh, the next morning because uh, Tommy Cole, a uh, veteran Mouseketeer, and his mother had come to pick me up that Saturday morning, and I, Mom made me go out there and tell them that, that I'd been fired. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, that's brutal. Uh, I, you know, there were times uh, when I, I could actually uh, recapture that, that emotional feeling. And besides everything else, you know, once you start working regularly and you get into the, you know, into the rhythm of auditioning well and then showing up for a job and being prepared, uh, you kind of like it because it, it's a lot of fun. It sure. really is. Now, now, were your were your parents involved in the entertainment business at all? Not at all. In fact, uh, my dad was an engineer at Lockheed. In fact, uh, 
nearly 40 years in the skunk works uh, with Kelly Johnson and that crew. Uh And my mom, uh, after working at Lockheed, uh, ended up working for the state of California. And they they kept it at a, a distance, a certain distance from that because, frankly, once I got the movie Houseboat, uh, things were pretty much out of their control. And, of course, it was made even more apparent when I got the job on the Donna Reed show. I mean, who knew it would last eight years? And, uh, like my mom said, how could I compete with Donna Reed? True. That's true. We all wanted a mom like Donna Reed, and, for sure. And you, and your mom and Donna Reed were really of the same generation. Absolutely. In fact, they were born in adjacent counties in western Iowa. Uh, my mom in Cherokee County and Donna in Crawford County, uh, her own town, was Denison. In fact, I'd love to tell this story, Bob and Suzanne, you'll like this. On the first day of shooting, now we already knew, of course, who Donna Reed was, an Iowa girl, practically a neighbor, and she was an Academy Award winner. And my grandpa Burr insisted on taking me on that first day. And he walked right up to Donna Reed the very first day and looked her in the eye and said, Donna Bell Mullinger, I know your dad. (laughs) That is great. And what did she say? What was her reaction? Oh, Donna at the core was an Iowa farm girl. You know, she was, and people in Iowa, they know how to visit. And she smiled and laughed and and wanted to know all about our family. She was very generous and kind. But I remind people, the overlay of this Iowa farm girl, oldest of five children during the Depression, was that she came out to Hollywood and conquered the town. And she worked at MGM under contract. She was one of those galaxy of a million stars gals. There was the Hollywood star was an overlay on top of very sound Midwestern character. Now, when you went up for the Donna Reed show, how old were you? Uh, I was 12. Did you, under- we, uh, did you did understand the- what how how significant that that casting call was? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Shelley Fabre and I have talked about this many times. When you go up for a series, uh, you're hoping just to get the pilot because they pay you kind of extra for the pilot, and nobody knows whether your project will sell. But Tony Dow says this beautifully. You make a decision, you win the part, and then poof, there goes your life. It takes over, sure, sure. Well, sure it does. We worked 39 weeks a year, roughly following the school calendar, because Donna, remember, had four children at home. So we had uh, 13 weeks off, and the rest of the time we were working. And what, and what was the day like on that set? Well, it was pretty easy. Uh, everybody who worked on the Donna Reed show was a true professional. Everybody came to work prepared and on time. There were no dramas. The man who created the Donna Reed show, his name was William Roberts, uh, he already came with the complete package. He'd written a little movie called The Magnificent Seven. Oh, that little um, movie, yes. Yeah, you know, that little thing. Uh, and our directors were all veterans of the industry, Oscar Rudolph and the Alan Rifkin and Gene Reynolds later, Jackie Cooper. So it was a pretty easy schedule. We would knock out a full episode in the course of a five-day week, two of which were for rehearsals. And I got to work a little before eight, sometimes earlier, because I like going there. And I was always home and, and out of the studio by four o'clock. Now, now you and Shelley were fundamentally new talent. Remember now, Shelley had already been Annette's uh, girlfriend on the Spin and Marty series from the Mouseketeers, and she had been working steadily. 
uh, neither one of us uh, was a rookie. Well, when we came to work, I mean, I, Donna Reed called Cary Grant to see if he thought as much of my, my talent as she did. And he said, absolutely. He's a handful, but you'll love him. <laughs> and you always and, have and, been, I suppose. <laughs> well, but, you know, remember the character I was playing, the pesky little brother, but with good manners, right. who learned his lessons every 22 and a half minutes. And Shelley was perfect as the long-suffering sister who was gorgeous and, and uh, thinking of boys and, and having her difficulties at school, living in a house where dad worked out of the house as a pediatrician, and mom was the ultimate housewife. And how was Carl Betts to work with? I try to explain this to people. He was different than any other man I'd ever met because Carl was a Shakespearean actor who had, in fact, won the Carnegie Award at uh, Carnegie Mellon University back in the day, which he shared with Robert Ludlum, the award-winning novelist. Mm -hmm. And Carl loved Shakespeare, and he loved the theater, and he loved to paint, and he loved to write. And to be around him uh, was different than being around the kind of men that I had always been around with who, who liked hunting and fishing and football and, and uh, were known to place a bet or two on the ponies. Uh, in fact, I'm describing Donna Reed's husband right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but he, he was different and yet wonderful. Of course, I adored him. Well, he certainly, he certainly came across as a very caring, empathetic kind of a father. I mean, his, well, his... He, in fact, he was, uh, and we were all so proud of him because remember, immediately after the Donna Reed show, thanks to his work on stage in a little theater in L.A., he uh, won the part of Judd for the defense, playing uh, the Texas lawyer Judd, right. and then he won the Emmy. So we were enormously proud of him. Yeah, it really came across on on screen. Did you ever, because you were thrust into these kind of uh, significant roles fairly early. Did you ever have a chance to actually study acting? Well, I, you know, I'm kind of the Spencer Tracy school. Um, when all else fails, just act. I have always had a rich imagination, and uh, once I understood what was called for, it was pretty easy as both a child and as a professional actor to put myself in the place of the character I was playing. In fact, one day on the Ford, on Ford Theater, I did a, a part called... Um, Black Jim Hawk, where I played Jim Hawk as a boy. And we were shooting at night at the Columbia Ranch, and I had to witness my father being hung by the neck. Oh. Now, of course, this is old television, so you couldn't actually show the hanging like right. they would today. Uh, so it all had to be on my face with the shadow of the hangman's noose in the background. And uh, I believed it. I'm telling you, I could see it I, in my mind. I was witnessing the the death of my father, and uh, it was an explosive scene. And when it was all over, there was a group of men standing behind the camera, all in suits. One was a little guy with a big cigar in his mouth. He said, God, kid, it looked like you really believed it. And I looked him in the eye. It was Harry Cohen, and I said, didn't you? Wow. That's the power. Right. And children are naturally adept at that. We sound naturally talented. The Donna Reed Show went on for, what, seven years? Eight years. Eight years. All my years, twixt 12 and 20. We did uh, 276 episodes. Did Visited you? America every Thursday night at 8 o'clock 
on what was then the baby network, ABC. That's right. right. And Paul, I have to tell you, I represent all of the women in my generation. I'm not too far behind you. You were really cute. Oh, please. Well, well, thank you. We loved looking at you. Hey, guys guys our age still like to be thought of as cute, right? Well, you know, it feels very good. So during that eight-year run, uh, did you do any other work outside of the show? A little bit here and there. Remember, our schedule was very confining. Uh, I was able, once the uh, music career started, thanks to Ricky Nelson, who had created this thing called a, uh, a teen idol, uh, I got out on the road with the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars, and I enjoyed the music. And of course, Shelley had a monster hit with Johnny Angel, um, and I enjoyed some some success, and I loved to go out on the road. It was fun. It was a great break from the discipline of the Donna Reed show. And I got to go, hey, look, I performed with some really fabulous people, you know, on our bus. Uh, these are the old days now, so we were on a tour bus uh, with the Drifters, the Supremes, Tom Jones. Oh, my goodness. Uh, How great is that? How cool. Oh, just exactly, because I, I have such respect for people who've made their life in music. So it's take, not something I could have done and sustained, like uh, like a Gene Pitney or the Drifters. Because uh, frankly, I get bored, and 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 I got a little tired of the of the sameness of it all. Singing the same song night after night for six weeks will drive you nuts. So how did how did the the singing opportunity actually surface? I understand Ricky Nelson kind of broke a lot of ice, but here you are working as a regular on the Donna Reed show. Nobody looked at you and said this guy's a rock star. How did that all come about? Well, Donna Reed's husband was our producer, and remember Screen Gems, which was the company we worked for along with Donna's production company, which was called Todon for Tony and Donna. Uh, we were all owned corporately by Columbia Pictures which had an entity called Colpix Records. So it was a natural progression. And they sent out Donnie Kirshner and Stu Phillips uh, to see if Shelley and I could even carry a tune. The proof that you can carry a tune is my dad, because I, I find that a very difficult melody. In fact, it is. It, uh, it remains one of those moments in my, in my um, public career, which I, I cherish. He isn't much in the eyes of the world, but he is the world to me, my dad. You know, I'm still friends with Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, who wrote that tune, in honor of Barry's father, who had passed away. And uh, given the circumstances of my life, you know, I've lost my biological father, Doc, and Carl Betts, and my stepdad, and my favorite uh, uh, father-in-law. That song means a lot to me as the father of two grown men. It's a difficult song to sing, isn't it? You know, it, it, it may be for some, but for me, the memories are so uh, embedded in my mind. I got to sing it to Carl Betts, whom I adored, as I told you earlier. My father was deeply touched by it. 
um, I made myself learn that song, and I did the best I could. When I see videos of you singing it, there's actually a tremendous amount of emotion you bring to it, which is unusual for pop music. Well, I think so, and that's why uh, in when people vote on, on these things, uh, that single episode... Uh, where I sang My Dad has been consistently voted among the top 100 episodes all time on episodic television. That's why I'm in the you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Television uh, Hall of Fame. Now, uh, which was the more popular song, that or She Can't Find My Keys? Oh, well, my, <laughs> She Can't Find Your Keys. That's still a hard song to sing. Uh, well, My Dad by far. Look, every Father's Day, it sells about 60,000 copies. Uh, it's played all over the planet, wherever people speak English, or even not English, because uh, you know our show was shown in a half a dozen different languages, and so it is a constant and very pleasant reminder. There are not a lot of father songs, you know. Right, right. Now, so once you had these, your musical career was beginning to percolate a little bit. Did you have aspira- mm-hmm. did, you, did you have aspirations to go further with it, to become the next Bobby Rydell or Fabian or even no, Elvis? No, no, I. I I didn't because, well, first of all, I preferred the acting. Uh-huh. There was a certain sameness in the pop music world that I didn't much care for. And besides that, I, I have tremendous respect for the people who are truly musicians and who have dedicated their lives to singing, to, to pop music. Look, I was a kid from the Donna Reed show, and the girls would scream and not pay much attention to my singing voice or well, a little bit to my appearance, but I, I, standing in the wings would be the Drifters, for God's sake, or the sure. Supremes. But who cared Tom about Jones. them? Who cared about them when you're a young teenage girl? It was Paul Peterson. Yeah, you. Well, you, you, I, I, believe me, I got it. But at the same time, I was, you know, I was. I closed the first act. Tom Jones closed the end of the show, and and I was almost uncomfortable with that kind of adulation, knowing that genuine musicians and song stylists were on the same bus with me. Sure. And I, I think, frankly, it was appreciated by my bus mates, uh, so much so that uh, after the Donna Reed show, uh, I, had, uh, I quit the Colpix contract for a lot of reasons, most of which had to do with not getting paid correctly. Well, there you uh, go. The very first... Well, none of us got paid in those days. But the first record company I signed with after the Donnery Show was Motown. And the reason was I had made great friends, lasting friendships, on the road with the Motown stars. Well, it sounds like uh, the key to that was your your genuine humility about the whole thing. Uh, well, it has to do with the respect for the music. And also, uh, from some powerful lessons, I, I, one night on the bus... Uh, and this happened every night. Gene Pitney and I kind of sat in uh, together. And every night, Gene Pitney would open his briefcase and take out all the business cards of the men and women he had met during the course of that day, you know, appearances and, and backstage and the rest. And he would write a personal note to each one of them. And I finally asked him, Gene, what are you doing? Why do you do that every night? And he said, Paul, if you want to be in this business a long time, you thank everyone on the way up because you don't know who you'll need on the way down. Well, he's right about that, huh? That's, he certainly was. That's, yeah. that's his, so true. His career was the proof. And yeah. that's so true that's of show business. That's the way I feel about yeah. Bobby Rydell and Frankie Avalon and Fabian. You know, there are very few bubblegum stars in the world. 
and we are we are a very cozy little brotherhood. We get it. Right. Now, Paul, on a personal level, when you were growing up and became a very popular teenager, what was dating like for you? Oh, it was great. Are you talking? I love fast cars and faster women. I had a ball. So the pop music thing is happening, and the Donna Reed show, like all shows must, right. comes to an end. That's right. What was that? And what, then I had to discover over the next four years uh, what Mickey Rooney subsequently promised me was the way of things. When Hollywood is done with you, they're done with you. I remember the era. In 1966, when the Donna Reed Show went off the air, there were half a million troops in Vietnam. Uh, my same age contemporaries were being drafted. Uh, it was the, at the initial phases of the British invasion, and then suddenly it was the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, and the Turtles. And, and a guy like me, uh, who represented the all-American boy, I didn't fit anymore. So you felt that your character was out. Well, yes, completely. I had to live this. And, of course, no one talks to you about it, although nowadays we have a minor consideration so a whole bunch of former kid stars can give counsel mm -hmm. to the next generation. But in my day, uh, you know, I thought I was being raised uh, to be the next Cary Grant. Cary Grant thought I was. And then the world changed. Well, exactly. And, the, uh, the 60s happened, right. Well, exactly. In the late 60s, you know, uh, the Donna Reed Show was still on the air, the last black and white family sitcom in 1966. By that time, I grew rather angry and, frankly, embittered by the treatment I was receiving at Hollywood. I did a few movies. I did a few television shows. But this is the shorthand explanation. The year after the Donna Reed Show, I worked 16 weeks. The year after that, I worked eight weeks. The year after that, I worked four weeks. And by 1969, I didn't work at all. So when we look at your credit list, and, there's, and it's very substantial, in that period of time, you appeared on, it looks like, a couple of dozen rather you know hit shows, from The Flying Nun to sure. Lassie, The Big Valley, My Three Sons, O'Hara, yes, stuff like that. I mean, most actors would be just thrilled to have that kind of a resume, but what, you, what I'm hearing is that because you had been working so steadily for so long, suddenly to have the sporadic life of a typical actor felt a little bit at odds with what your expectations were. Well, it was. I, I was unaccustomed to it. And even when I got to do good projects like um, Journey to Shiloh, with Jimmy Kahn and Michael Saracen and Harrison Ford and Don Stroud, Jan Michael Vincent. We had a hell of a cast, but it was underappreciated because we weren't in the mainstream of what Hollywood became. Sure. Now, we, we come to a point in your career where you did a lot of work for Aaron Spelling. Uh, one yes, of, well, that's because we were, we were close friends. One of, one of which was a show that both you and Suzanne appeared on, Fantasy Island. Oh, my. Believe me, for me, it was a very big deal. I, I remember seeing you, but also it was my first speaking role. Hey, I darn. was uh, one of the Lava Lava girls trying to break into the business, and uh, I got lucky, and a director threw me a couple lines on a show called Baby Marathon. And, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, so that was a funny thing, and I remember seeing seen you and i thought whoa you were cute at that time you were something of a television icon 
having done well yeah you it's funny how quickly you become that where uh people remember you but they don't call you in for the next job that's the funniest part so how did you know aaron spelling well i knew aaron before aaron spelling became this hit uh, producer with leonard goldberg i i've known him for ages in fact when i came back to hollywood uh and picked up, uh, uh, at least getting out in public again, Aaron Spelling, he was wonderful. He always, he said, do you have insurance? Knowing I had, you know, a wife and two little boys at home. And I said, no, I haven't qualified. And the next thing I know, at least two or three times a month, I would get a part on an Aaron Spelling show. It was fabulous. Well, nothing wrong with that. It really does prove, once again, it matters a lot who your friends are. Well, it, it does. And especially if, if you understand the way Hollywood used to work and is meant to work, you take care of each other. And if you've got a job uh, where somebody needs uh, another $2,000 to qualify for health coverage and has a family, you make sure they get the job. Michael Landon was noted for that. I mean, he actually asked around, who needs help this month? Well, that's sweet. And then make sure they, they'd be hired. That's a nice person. That's a great, great thing to hear. Oh, absolutely. You hear wonderful stories of how, you know, someone's, um, some family member would suddenly be in the hospital or there'd be an injury or some, some trouble. And Michael Landon would slip up to them and, and like your brother, suddenly slip a folded check in your pocket and it'd be for 10 grand. Wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. So what I'm hearing here, and a lot of our listeners, you understand, have aspirations for a career doing anything in the business, but to, to become an actor requires uh, the ability to absorb these uh, cycles. It's not always a bowl of cherries. Well, exactly, and that's why, frankly, I got out of town at Mickey Rooney's urging. You know, he told me right to my face in 1969, Paul, they're not going to let you work. you got to get out of town, get your education, find something else to do, and come back in 25 or 30 years. Well, that, that... Because he, he knew because it happened to him, you see. Right. So, Paul, I'm uh, curious as how did you meet Mickey Rooney? He came to my house in the spring of 1969, which had been destroyed by a flood. Uh, I didn't invite him. He just showed up at my door, pushed past me and sat down in my muddy living room and gave me a lesson, a life lesson. And he was dead right. Because when I finally did get out of town and start my writing career with Simon & Schuster and and Random House, when I came back to Hollywood years later, the old reputation was still at play. I mean, after 10 books and, and opening a successful business, I kind of figured, well, at least I proved myself. I was still Jeff Stone in people's minds. I was old me. That's incredible. And it is, and yet it isn't. I don't take any of this personally. It has made me able to uh, help other former kid stars, young performers in particular, and I'm sensitive to, to what it feels like to be thrown on the scrap heap. So, 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 so here you are, a guy who'd had this terrific career, and you're sitting in, a, in your house, which has been devastated by water, and a movie star walks in the door. The, exactly the, right. The, and Mickey, Mickey and I share the same birthday, so because, uh, he and I had always been aware of each other. I, of course, from a distance. But Mickey knew what was coming, and so did uh, Jackie Cooper, who had directed a couple of Donna Reed shows. These men were instrumental in, in helping me find my balance. And, and here's another thing. By the time I had written all of these books, 16 and all, 
I finally, with a sense of humor, was able to look at people who would say to me, well, why aren't you on a television show? And I would look at them and say, if you think being an author published 10 times over means less than being a kid on a television show, there's something wrong with you, not me. Well, take a step back and tell us about about the novels. How did that all come about? And what was your experience? Well, my, my fr- I met a man um, at a party, uh, David Oliphant, who was the owner of Academic Industries, who said, I got somebody when, you, when I want you to meet. And it turned out to be the senior editor at Simon & Schuster, Herb Alexander, who needed a book because uh, Carol Shelby didn't deliver. And the book he wanted was called High Performance Driving, and he gave me a chance. I delivered the manuscript, uh, ready to go to press with the photos and captions and everything put together. And my reward for being professional about my first book was a contract to write a series of books called The Smugglers, which uh, were eight titles and all. And, you know, before I knew it, I was, you know, a published author. It was wonderful. You make it sound so easy. Were you a racing aficionado? Did you know something about it? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? What do you think I did with my money when I was 16, 20? Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) As I I recall, at one point in time when you were young, you had a Cobra, didn't you? Yes, I was the president and founder of the Cobra Owners Association back ah, in the day. Okay, so that, that and, gave you some uh, entree to the subject matter. But what made you think, I mean, here you are an actor. What gave you the temerity, if you will, to think that you could actually write a novel? That's a big, that's a big thing to bite off. Actually, it wasn't. Um, you know, when you spend time with uh, highly paid professionals who are respected in their craft, actually putting together a creative project like a television show. You learn a lot of things. You learn how to make jokes work. You learn how plots have to be advanced. You learn how to make a point. You listen to people who are certainly your betters when it comes to the written word as they teach you what their thinking is. I was never intimidated by writing a novel. You know, the simple description of this is you start with an empty paper on your left, and you run it through your typewriter or word processor or your computer, and when all of those empty papers get over to the right and they're filled with scribbles, you've written a book. Boy, <laughs> there are a lot. I can imagine the people out there who sit scratching their heads in frustration who've started books and never finished, because it's, <laughs> it's, about, it's about finishing, isn't it? Well, I, yes, it is, and it's about discipline. Look, I, you know, my life was not all a, a, a smooth path, but nonetheless, I had that uh, Ernest Hemingway uh, discipline that no matter what, I was at my desk in my office by 4 o'clock in the morning every morning, and that was whether I felt good or bad. I got my work done before 8 o'clock in the morning. I, we've heard that so uh, many times. Or uh, Stephen J. Cannell, the, uh, the, uh-huh. the late producer, he was a dawn writer himself. If he wasn't writing by 5 o'clock in the morning, his day was over. I well, mean, and I understand that, look, the phones don't ring. That's great. That's great. Of all the acting that you've done, and I have a couple more questions about your favorite stuff, but of all the acting you've done, you've done so many different things. Which role would you ever care to repeat? Well, I love being Cary Grant's son because I certainly learned what a Hollywood star is all about, the level of professionalism. And the way he, without even having to stomp, stamp his foot, dominated the entire production. 
I mean, he was Cary Grant, for God's sake. That seven months in Washington, D.C., doing a Class A movie like that was a great experience. Uh, there was a small part that I did on the Henry Fonda show, uh, which I'll share with you why I've, I remember this so fondly. I was, I was supposed to be a kid out of prison with a chip on my shoulder. And we were doing a scene at the front door, and there's Henry, Henry Fonda, for God's sake, right there. And I was really chewing the drapes. I was giving it all I had. And Don Federson came down, and he said, Paul, and he did this in front of the entire crew. He said, Paul, I, I love what you're doing, but you need to take it down a notch. This is a family show. And I looked on right in the eye, and I said, well, of course, there's a thousand different ways to do this scene. And so I did it with a little softer edge and, and same dialogue, but not quite as intense. And Henry Fonda came over to me when the director said cut, and he said, you know, young man, that's one of the most professional things I've ever seen. That's quite well, a that's compliment. The kind of comp well, it's a compliment you live for because a man who knew the difference, who was in the scene with you, recognized the will and the discipline it takes to deliver the part you were hired to play. Now, Paul, I wasn't um, there for my enjoyment. Right. Now, Paul, I, um, a lot of our viewers, of course, are newbies and they um, are looking for lots of ways to how to navigate their career. But we also have quite a few people who love the whole idea of classic movies, TV, and music. And so yes. I know a lot of our viewers would love to know what was Cary Grant like to work with? Oh, he was an absolute dream early on in the process because he had personally hired me. I started calling him Mr. G. And <laughs> uh, I called him that until his death. Because we stayed friends after this movie, Houseboat, and believe it or not, frequently saw each other in the rather small world of Hollywood parties and all the rest. And I always admired him because he would pause for a minute uh, to teach me a trick or two about acting, whether how to do a double or a triple or even a quadruple date, uh, how to get along with crew. And he was very open and honest with me and very generous with his time. How about Henry yes. Fonda? Well, Henry, I, he was a dream. I, I talk about a man with a reputation. I, I knew his work, of course, and, and I had a great admirer of his. Uh, and I knew his kids, <laughs> Jane and Peter. I, you know, we were all in the same town together. Now, of all the of all the, and you, you've worked with some really significant people who have had huge, you know, the, in, huge impact on the history of film in Hollywood. Yes. But if you could only appear with one of them again, which would it be? Well, Donna Reed tops the list. Okay. I can't I can't express to you adequately what a pleasure it was to be around Donna Reed. She, she was an Academy Award winner. I never called her Donna until I was 26 years old. She was all, always misread in public or mom. But along the way, she would be teaching about how to be a professional, how to be a young man. I remember when, when things got a little crazy when I was 17 years old or so, and I, you know, I had the Cobra in the garage and there were girls all over. She came over to me and said, Paul, you can get away with anything in Hollywood if you're discreet. <laughs> good, good advice. Good yes, advice. Yes. Oh, well, of course it is. And, and believe me, it was a thank you, Mom. 
What a classy uh, way to true. say things. So, so she's your favorite leading lady. Well, I absolutely look at you. I, it's hard to express how uh, there are there are tricks and shortcuts to acting. And Donna uh, became aware that that I was uh, kind of sloughing off my offstage lines, you know, when we were doing close-ups and stuff. And she reminded me, in no uncertain terms, but very gently, Paul, give me the same performance when you're off camera as you do when you're on, because I have to react to you. And and then I'd watch her do it for me when she was off camera and I was getting the close-up. She did it herself. She lived what she taught. So let me ask you this. If you had it to do all over again, you've had several careers. <laughs> would, exactly. But if you were starting, would it, I do it again? Well, it, you, remember you, the, you remember the Kate Smith song? Yeah. If I had my life to live over, I'd do the same things again. But if you could only, well, here's if, the truth. But if you could only be one, it, would you be an actor? A no, singer, no, or, no, or no. A novelist? I, I would, I would be what I am now. Uh, and that is a very effective lobbyist and um, law writer. Uh, the greatest satisfaction I've ever had in my life is seeing a, ne a much-needed bill uh, from inception to conclusion. You know, we passed nine major pieces of legislation on behalf of working kids. Can you take us back a little and uh, tell us how that all came about? Well, I, I got tired of going to my friend's funerals. Uh, when Russ Hamer killed himself back in uh, January of 1990, I said to my wife, that's never going to happen again. When there's a kid actor in trouble, I'm going to show up and knock on wood, which I'm doing. Uh, that is still true today. But as I came to understand the true structure uh, that surrounds professional children, the more committed I became to changing things. For example, people don't understand that since 1938, Children in the entertainment business have been exempt from federal child labor laws. Well, why is that important, people say? Well, because if you work in California with a good set of rules, you're pretty well protected. But if you work in North Carolina where there are no rules, you're at risk. Children don't own the money they earn. In all states except California, children are the property of their parents. They are chattel, like a car or a cow, or a goat. Now, that is unseemly to me. We have incredible rules for the protection of, of industry animals, spiders, fish, mice, horses. Well, why don't we have the same rules for kids everywhere and every when? And once I discovered these core realities that surround children, I and a whole bunch of other former kid stars, now much more than 600 just in my uh, little group, we've tackled this. And we were able to convince legislators all across the country that it's time for change, up to and including uh, uh, Pennsylvania, where they shot John and Kate plus eight, because they weren't enforcing what, what ineffective laws they had on the books. Imagine not having to pay 80% of your cast. Because, you see, Kate made money, John made money, the directors made money, the cor corporations certainly made money, and you don't pay the kids? Interestingly enough, the public knows very little of this. Well, guess why that is? Because the media is dominated by the entertainment business. Entertainment business. They don't call it show fun. This is show business. And if you can save a buck on the back of a child, these people out here, they do it. And for those of us who suffered under this ridiculous regime where 
if your parents fail to file your income tax return, the IRS, they come after the kid. They pursue the Social Security number. That's just dead wrong. Now, when, it, when you started all this, okay. t- tell me about, and I don't know very much about it, uh, the Jackie Coogan Law, that had come. That was in effect like in the 40s, was it not? Sure, but you had to have a long-term contract to have your contract approved. In other words, you had to work for one of the majors, or you had to have a long-running television series. But even the Coogan Law was imperfect, because while the court protected a portion of your income, generally around 20%, they never addressed the ownership of the remainder of the money. And I'm telling you that that Gary Coleman's parents, his mom in particular, said exactly the same thing Jackie Coogan's mother said back in the 30s when she was being accused of theft. She said to the judge, Your Honor, you cannot steal what already belongs to you. Because Gary Coleman's money, and it, we're talking millions, was actually the property of his parents. Crazy. Wow. Crazy. In a nutshell, t- tell us what the actual mission statement is of a minor consideration? A minor consideration was formed to provide uh, support for uh, former kid stars. Uh, that uh, support comes often in, in uh, financial assistance. It comes from support groups that get together to address specific issues. Uh, we have therapists who donate their time. We have from business managers to tax accountants to some very fine attorneys. Uh, but most of all, Minor con- a minor consideration provides a forum for former kid stars to get together so they don't feel so alone and isolated. And if a listener wants to become involved or contribute or uh, in some way provide some participation, uh, where can they find more information out about a minor consideration? If you go to Google, you can find a minor consideration pretty simply. Uh, we're at uh, www.minorcon, M-I-N-O-R-C-O-N as in Nora, dot org. We're a 501c3, fully tax deductible. We uh, are also a big presence on Facebook. Uh, and I do. I have three different Facebook pages because I hate those fan pages. I like to talk to people. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find. And, oh, by the way, my phone is listed. <laughs> wow. You're, you're a brave man. You're a brave man. And- no, I'm not. I, people, people who are looking for me usually really need to talk to me. There was some kid somewhere in trouble or being exploited or whose future is in doubt, and I want to make sure people can get a hold of me. Um, My wife said, it's not so bad now because I'm getting older, and frankly, younger former kid stars are on the hook at 3 in the morning. But I spent 30 years answering the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my goodness. That's incredibly generous and obviously enormously helpful. We'd like to think so. We have made significant changes in the rules. But best of all, we have made the industry sit up and take notice. We are not to be trifled with. Well, we try to always find solutions in the smoky back rooms of Hollywood. But if necessary... We will take advantage of uh, take advantage of what we call earned media. If we need to get a story out, we can get it out. And the industry had to learn that when they denied hiring premature babies. I'm talking about three pound newborns uh, with weak lungs and hearts and eyesight. And uh, so we gave them a five-page expose in the New York Times and uh, the Washington Post. And as the head of the Producers Association, Nick Counter, said to me that following weekend, he said, geez, Paul, it doesn't pay to piss you off. (laughs) 
So, Perfect. Paul, um, what would you say to young parents thinking they have the next Paul Peterson? Uh, would What would you say to them if they were looking to put their children into show business? Uh, well, first, be patient. First, make sure that you're a big fish in a small pond. I'm talking lessons. I'm talking community theater. I'm talking recitals. Making sure that your child is not being forced into this, but really has... Uh, like the proverbial duck, taken to this water. And don't be disappointed uh, if you don't have a childhood career because children become adults. The longest career you can have is up to the age of 18. But if you focus on the future and they really want to do this thing called performing, then make sure they get their college degree and prepare themselves because then they can have a career that can stretch 40, 50 years with a lot of different outlets within the performing arts community. But don't be pushing kids into this business. If your child says to you, I'd rather, I'd rather play Little League uh, than go to this audition, well, go play, play Little League. And for the, the late teen or the uh, early 20-year-old who is considering a career as a performer, how do they, how do they do it today? Look, you have to be disciplined. You have to read plays. You have to be around the theater. You have to be familiar with the industry you are seeking to conquer. You have to take lessons in voice, in dance, as Carl Betts did with fencing. You have to be ready to play any kind of part that's thrown your way. And be humble and be prepared. We all know the truth of this statement. There are lots of 10-year overnight successes. Exactly, exactly. It's all about preparation for sure. Absolutely. Preparations and preparation and patience, those are the key, but you better bring your best work. Nobody gets a pass. Now, Paul, you've done so many things in your life. Did you ever think about producing? No, I, you know, I'm not really good at that. I'm pretty short-tempered with people. I, I, if, they, if they aren't living up to my expectations, I will tell them about it. So you're a perfectionist. Uh, well, I, it, it, that's not true. Look, I'm very tolerant of people's failings because I've had to be learn to be tolerant of my own. But in a business setting... Uh, some facts just can't be pushed off to the side. I try to give my advice in a reasonable and, and hopefully humorous fashion, but you're still going to get the advice. Uh, I get a lot of calls from producers or adult co-stars who say, hey, can you come over? We're having trouble with this kid and, uh, and his family. And uh, guess what? I do show up. It never makes it to the press, but my counsel is generally heated because here's the, here's the truth. I did this thing. I was the kid star. I was a bubblegum star. I get it. I know what it feels like to be uh, afraid and looking over your shoulder because people are telling you uh, there's a thousand kids who want your job. You better be good. I know what that feels like. Um, I also know, however, that if you do well in a good part, it will be noticed and appreciated. It may not last 20 years. So uh, what are you up to these days? Any more books coming out? Well, actually, uh, yes, we're going to... I love this e-books thing. Uh, they're republishing uh, many of my books, nine so far, 
which will be available at the beginning of next month on Amazon.com. Awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to oversee the transition of a minor consideration into the hands of younger former kid stars, and that process is well underway. And I, I must tell you that of all the things, on my tombstone, I really hope it says that he... Paul created a minor consideration, which today is being run by former kid stars who are 30 years younger, awesome. because that's what's happening right now. It's a awesome. very good feeling. Awesome. Well, we're you, you're such an impressive guy that I think the world really does need to know more about the wonderful things you've done. I, on a, on a personal level, am very impressed with the writing career. Uh, Suzanne and I are just about to release a, a hardcover book called Where Hollywood Hides, Santa Barbara, Really about ah, about good. about celebrities who live within our community, and the writing and publishing process is something that is not to be believed. It's complex. Well, it, it's as complex as making a movie. Uh, oh, it, it is absolutely. There are many factors at work, but in the end, you know, if it's it is about content. Make sure you finish the work. Absolutely. And good on both of you. I look forward to getting this this book. Yes. And Paul. Um, just one last question. I can't let you go sure. without asking your opinion of what you think about television these days, because it, it is very different than when you were in television. Well, I, I think it's disgusting. I think it's harmful. I think it uh, demeans the performing arts. Uh, I hate the coarseness of it, uh, the predictability of it, and the fact that um, reality shows, which are in fact scripted, uh, are in the business of fooling America. I don't like it. I, right. I, I don't like uh, I don't like bad language, and I don't like to see complicated plots reserved uh, resolved by unconstitutional means. So and what, what, I'm he what I'm hearing what I'm hearing is you're not a big fan of the Kardashians. Uh, no, I am not. <laughs> uh, and you can there's a whole bunch more than just the Kardashians, particularly given how how the uh, public part of their career actually started. I think right. it's shameful. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a new world, and uh, the best we can do is adapt and maintain our values. Well, that is correct, and, and live them, not, not just speaking uh, the words, but to live the words. Well, Paul, thank you so much for this time. You are someone to admire. I'm not saying this to embarrass you, but you really are, and I can say to people that I was in a TV show with Paul Peterson, <laughs> even if it was How just fun. for a second. Everybody's got a claim to fame. Uh, That's right. So, Paul, well, thank, thank you. you both very much. I, I've enjoyed this hour. We'll Th have to do this again, Paul. Thanks again, man. Anytime. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I sure did like the Donna Reed show. Wasn't that the best show? Absolutely. I wanted a I never mom. Missed it. I mean, I loved my mom and dad, but I quietly wished they were kind of like that. But how many times do we get to talk to one of the original Mouseketeers? That's very cool. Yeah, very anyway, cool. that was a great conversation with Paul. We really appreciate him joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Paul. And want to remind everybody before we go, go to the website at wherehollywoodhides.com or go to your local bookstore or Amazon and look for the book, Where Hollywood Hides, Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. It's out in hardcover, full color, and it is selling. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a quick comment or review at iTunes forward slash Where Hollywood Hides. And drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Where Hollywood Hides and hit that like button. And today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. 
So until next time, we'll see you at Podcast 31. Bye.
And today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a quick comment or review at iTunes forward slash where Hollywood hides. Those reviews really do help get the word out. And drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash where Hollywood hides and hit that like button.